Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with Michael Tubbs about his terrific memoir, The Deep of the Roots. Michael was elected the 79th mayor of Stockton, California in 2016 at the age of 26. He now serves as a special advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom. Michael is a 2012 graduate of Stanford University. Michael, welcome to That Said. Thank you for having me, Michael. <laughs> so your book, The Deeper the Roots, a memoir of hope and home, was a terrific read. And I wonder if you could start off by telling us why did you write this book? What was it that you were trying to accomplish in the writing of this book? Well, growing up, I loved to read. My first job was at Barnes & Noble. I remember particularly loving coming-of-age books, like books about how folks transition from adulthood, from adolescence to adulthood, and the lessons they learned about, along the way, the experiences they had. And when I won my election for mayor in 2016, it was the same, t- same day excuse me, that Donald Trump was, was um, elected. And I remember publishers and folks reaching out and saying, well, what does this say about America that you can be elected mayor on the same day Donald Trump's elected president? And then I realized that there was a special opportunity to write a coming-of-age sort of memoir that I loved so much as a kid, but also to have one with more political commentary in terms of what does it say about the promise and the perils of America that on the same night you can elect someone like a Michael Tubbs and someone like a Donald Trump. And what does that suggest about the work we have to do ahead? Um, so super long answer, but that's kind of the impetus behind the book. The title of the book, The Deeper the Roots, you write of it, the political is personal. The closest to the pain should be closest to the power. The deeper the roots, the deeper the commitment to making structural change should be. So tell us about that. What do you mean? Yeah, well, partly there's title comes from one of my favorite Tupac songs called Keep Your Head Up where he talks about having deep roots. And in that passage in the book, I talk about how those deep roots, that deep sort of grounding in community and really grounding in in struggle really creates a fidelity to getting things done, an impatience with the status quo and an insistence that things could get better. And when we say sort of the deeper the roots, the deeper the commitment to structural change, it's a realization that structural change is hard and to really be about sort of changing the structures of this country require a deep commitment, but also a deep grounding in something more than political expediency or something more as to what the current political consensus is. And I think just being grounded in a place like Stockton, growing up in poverty, et cetera, has given me sort of the foundation to really do the hard work over many decades, hopefully, to continue to push our country to live up to its ideals. So tell us a little bit about Stockton. Stockton, California is a city of 315,000 people. It's about three times the size of South Bend, Indiana, as a reference point. It's the most diverse metro area in this country um, with real problems. I mean, 25% poverty rate for the past 30 years. We're often about one of the top two or three most violent cities in the state of California. I'm the largest state in the country to declare, largest city, excuse me, in the country to de- declare bankruptcy in 2012 before Detroit. Um also a city with resilient people, gritty people, solve the earth type folks, city full of essential workers and people who go to church, love their kids, struggling to make it. Um, it's a real microcosm, I think, for, for the country in, in many respects. But for me, it, I, I think Stockton has more in common oftentimes with some of the Midwest towns we see um, than sort of what the images of California, because it's highly agrarian, highly agricultural. Um, no real investment from the state in terms of education. Most of the state's investments have been around kind of the carceral state with prisons and jails and youth prisons and a $400 million courthouse. Um, so it's a city with real problems, but also like real problems. And that's what sort of made being an elected official there so fun, but also incredibly challenging. You write of Stockton that for nearly 300 years, it was a place people gravitated to. And now it's become more of a place where people are trying to escape from. And you write that you can't move from a place people gravitate to, to a place people try to escape from without talking about structural problems like redlining and banking deserts and food deserts. So talk a little bit about this migration from a place that people wanted to be 
for a long time to a place they wanted to escape from and, and your analysis of the problem? Yeah, well, well, thank you for that question because Stockton has so many assets, um, particularly our land. We have the second, the largest inland port in the state. Uh, we were a gold rush city. Um, we were a place people, where our location is close to the Bay Area, close to Sacramento, close to sort of natural amenities like national parks, et cetera. And for generations, people would come from around the world to set roots in Stockton and to build families and build communities. Like the oldest Sikh temple in North America is in Stockton. There's a huge Greek community in Stockton. And folks would come and bring their families over to settle. But then over time, as the city became more diverse, sort of white flight began to prep in. And the city began to expand and sprawl and sprawl. And then we had um, sort of policies like redlining. We had new school districts created where we concentrated poverty in certain parts of the city and began to build other school districts. So, so some kids would have to be educated next to others. And that's why Stockton, a city of 300,000 people, has five different independent school districts with five different school boards and five different superintendents in the same city. It's completely ridiculous. Um, we, we see sort of the, the privatization of, of resources. So the abundance of sort of parochial schools and, and, and private schools as a means to get around desegregation. Um, we see sort of a, a city government highly focused on where middle class, upper middle class people live and the amenities they, that, that they need to the detriment of folks who are coming um, first-generation immigrants, et cetera, who were coming maybe with a little bit less resources. And then over time, it was compounded with drugs. Because of our location between I, I-5 and 99, it's a throw, throwaway for human trafficking, for drugs. So these very serious social problems were built upon a foundation that didn't see the entire city as worthy of investment. And over decades, the city began to change. So by the time I was born, Stockton was known as one of the worst places to live. It was called the most miserable city. I remember... My senior year in high school, the newspaper article, front page of our local newspaper said lowest in literacy, highest in crime. And it was an article about Stockton, California. And that's kind of the Stockton I grew up in. And that's why I was so driven to come back and change it because I learned that, no, Stockton wasn't always like this. Like this was done because of policy, because of decisions that were made by folks in government and that folks in government have a chance to rectify some of it. So before we turn to your political career, I'd like to talk a little bit about your upbringing, because it was an important part of your life, obviously, and an important part of understanding who Michael Tubbs, the adult, became. So I'd like to ask some personal questions, if you don't mind. And the first of which is, tell us about your mom and then lead it out into your three moms. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, my mom is an incredibly determined, <laughs> resilient, and driven person. Um, she had me as a teenager. She was 16 years old when she was pregnant. Um, and because of my father's problems with the law, she knew she was going to have to raise me by herself. And she found a way uh, with the support of my aunt and my grandmother, but she also found a way herself to really have make sure I, didn't, I understood that my self-worth wasn't tied into our, our circumstances that because we were poor didn't mean I was didn't mean I was I was a deficit or because we lacked that didn't mean I lacked anything and she was really insistent on having a of me having a vision for myself that extended beyond our neighborhood and even beyond our city and even beyond her sort of um, limited options for upward mobility and my grandmother and my aunt were also huge helps and they all three of them really banded together and said you know what we're gonna make them our entire focus, them being me, my two cousins, and my brother, and that they spent all their time thinking about how to create the structure for us to be successful, how to um, create the environment where we felt loved and valued, and how they can do their best to provide. So I'm really the product of those three, particularly my mom, but those three women's sort of unbridled vision for what I could be, <laughs> and, and it, was, it was like whatever I wanted. And they really instilled that to in me in an early age. You write that your mom and really the Troika, because they all played an important role, but your mom stressed that the struggles you faced weren't permanent. They weren't indicative of your worth. They weren't your fault. But the things that were tough about our lives were going to be reasons to prove them 
wrong, and yet you're going to have to work twice as hard to succeed. Is that do I have that right? Yeah, my mom is a ruthless pragmatist. <laughs> she would always say, "Yeah, life isn't fair. It is not fair." But so you have to work twice as hard or three times as hard. You're always going to have to be way better. There's a different measuring stick for you. Um, and she, I mean, I, even when she delivered, it was kind of harsh. <laughs> it was no like, "This is unfair." Like, I'm sorry. It was like, "Oh, this is what it is." So to to do this, you have to work twice as hard. Sorry, that's just the world we live in. Um, but I'm but I'm thankful for that sort of. <laughs> clarity or clairvoyance around sort of the, the, the obstacles of what was required um because she made it very clear that you would have to just work harder than everyone else um because it, it wasn't fair but that was just what it is and you said of her that she became the secret source of your strength yeah absolutely i think sort of just watching her day after day and i didn't realize this when i was older like my mom never got her nails done my entire childhood. She never like went to the stone time. She only thing she did for self-indulgence was to get braids in her hair, which is actually pretty painful. That's not even fun. Um, but she never took spa days. She never had a massage. Her vacation days were used for when I was sick and she needed to take care of me and my brother. And just seeing how she never complained, never felt sorry for herself, never sort of gave up, um, but really modeled for us what it means to sort of respond from disappointments, respond to setbacks and really just put your shoulder to the will and, and push forward it was always sort of a, a, a source of inspiration for me um, and a big part of where I get my determination from today. If I can pivot a little bit, tell, and, and you feel comfortable, can you tell us about your dad? Yeah, my father, um, his name is Michael Tubbs as well. He's been incarcerated for the vast majority of time that I've been alive. I'm um, starting with my birth. Um, so he was incarcerated under the three strikes sort of statute in California um, for 25 years to life. So he's currently serving that sentence. Um, but before that, he's, he's, just, he's been in and out of our correctional system since he was 16 years old. Um, I don't know him personally that well. Um, but through writing this book, it actually gave me the opportunity to reflect on who was he as a 16, 17 year old when I was born. What was it like for him to be a father incarcerated? So what was I missing? What was society missing? Because um, he's been locked away without the chance to really contribute or to atone um, for past mistakes. Um, it also just gave me the, 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 the distance to really think about, wow, how, how did I really impact me? And not just in terms of being angry and upset or wanting to prove people wrong, but also just in terms of, wow, what was it like? How did I really feel about not having a father? So it was a great exercise because all this was happening while I became a father and began to think about fatherhood and the ways in which I wanted to show up for my now children, but before just my, my, my first child. You say at first when you were younger and people would ask you to tell you about your dad, you'd lie. You wouldn't tell what the true story of your dad was, but you later sort of came to terms with it a bit better. The thing that I, that struck me as very interesting is there comes a point as you're growing older and you visit your dad in jail, he sort of gave you a speech, left you with sort of a challenge. He said to you that as a black man in America from a poor single parent home, the expectation society laid out for you was prison or death. And his challenge was to ask you, what are you going to do to make that different for you? What are you going to do to prove them wrong? And that turned out to be like your mom's tenacity. That question became sort of a driving force in your life as well. So can you talk about that? please? Yeah, I, I think it was that question and kind of seeing him in chains um, and, 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 and with no freedom of ability and movement and seeing so many people that look like him and so many people that look like me um, having that same conversation or at least being in that same sort of um, environment really struck me as just fundamentally upset and, and wrong. The fact that folks would have preconceived judgments as to who I would be based off something that has nothing to do with me or <laughs> I had no role in. 
really still pisses me off, but but really pissed me off. And it, but I think it also, if it was just him, it would be easy to dismiss. But that was just the predominant sort of narrative, story, expectation, spoken or unspoken from media, from images on TV, from from teachers, from from the environment we were in. So I think what was so striking about his words weren't that they were novel, but they really articulated what was a lingering suspicion. Um, just from the way I was treated in classrooms or just from sort of the type of government investment I saw in my community or just in terms of sort of what was on TV or even when, you're, when your parents are incarcerated, you know, people tell you crazy things like, you know, your dad's incarcerated, so you're seven times more likely than other people to be incarcerated as if there's something in your DNA that makes you a criminal. Um, so the, all that was scrolling in my head and in that conversation with him, made me just really further resolve. Like, I'm, I mean, that might be true for everyone else. That's not going to be true for me. I, 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 I just refuse to have my fate dictated um, by something outside of my control. I'd like to turn a little bit because this all bleeds into who Michael Tubbs became as the young man and politician. But tell us a little bit about your early years in school. You write, you were in Lakeside Christian Elementary, and then Hamilton Middle School, Franklin High School. And you write really about your time in school that throughout you had to fight the soft bigotry of low expectations, that most of your classes felt like war and it was exhausting and how you constantly were being kicked out of the classroom for defiance or bad attitude, for doing things that your white classmates were allowed to do without reprimand. So talk a little bit about this, because this is in some sense what your dad is saying, which is the the system is sort of stacked to prove the point that you're going to, you know, be in this cradle to prison uh, pipeline and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, I actually loved learning, but I hated school or hated the classroom. I love the social parts of school. And I hated the classroom because it was always felt like I was in some battle where it wasn't, and it didn't feel like a safe space to learn or to dissent or to inquire or to grow the life of the mind. It felt like a place of constant battle. I was always on the lookout for any slights, any perceived injustices or real injustices. I was always, um, like just teachers just would fight all the time. If I got out of my seat, sit down. If I, I remember one time I actually spilled some water and my teacher kicked me out of the class for that. It just felt like, wow, they really don't want me here because I was in the accelerated classroom where oftentimes I was the only person that looked like me in the class anyway. And it was like, just signal, you don't belong in here. You belong somewhere else. You belong in the hallway. You belong in the principal's office. You, you don't belong in this space with all these high achieving students. So uh, that just made me more determined to be the best in the classroom. Even if I had to learn the lesson outside of class, even if I had to teach myself, or even if I had to read the book myself and, and, and try to figure out what, what, what the book was saying. Um, so it's interesting that, and I know we're going to get to this, I later became a teacher because I hated most of my teachers. I hated the classrooms. I felt they were not really designed to cultivate, but to control me. And I just really revolted against that. Well, so let's turn to that. You become a student teacher and then a teacher at Langston Hughes Academy. And there you say you were determined to sort of disrupt that which you experienced in school. And you write of it that your time there as a teacher gave you the opportunity to work directly with students who were contending with structural violence and poverty. And what was apparent was that these kids needed someone to believe in them to go the extra mile for them, and that sharing their background helped you reach and guide them. So talk a little bit about teaching and the importance of teaching people critical thinking skills and the agency to change the status quo. Yeah, I I was so excited um, to to be a teacher because I was a role, even more so than being like a mayor or council member, that was a role. If you had told 14-year-old Michael he's going to be a teacher, well, I don't even like teachers. Hell no. I will absolutely never be a teacher. And it was so, and I loved, like, every day I would wake up feeling like 
I'm really making a difference for these kids. And, and, and part of it was sort of acknowledging how jacked up their, their lived experiences were and, and how they still had an opportunity or they still had the chance to make those things different and that education was a tool to do it. And also really connecting their education to something bigger. That it wasn't just about you learning this thing. It's about giving you the tools to change everything you don't like about your life. Give you the tools to make your mom's life better. Because I think oftentimes the message that we get from other teachers was this very individualistic, like you need to do this so you can be successful. But for me and my kids, it was the communal aspect. It was why I could use this and help my family that would get them on fired up for school. And part of it was me sort of working out my own feelings of survivor skill. Uh, I would think about all my friends who didn't make it, all my great friends who disengaged from school, all my friends who, when they were kicked out of class, said, you know what, it's not worth it, I'm not going to do it. And wanting to, like, make it different for them by, by, by teaching. So it was a incredibly difficult and draining, but it was so rewarding. And I still draw on those lessons in terms of how you convey information to people and how do you really inspire a group, i.e. a classroom toward a collective goal academic achievement and, and those lessons have served me well you uh, quote juicy by notorious big and in that record he in that song he says this record is dedicated to all the teachers that told me i'd never amount to nothing to all the people that lived in the buildings that i was hustling in front of called the police on me when i was trying to just make money and feed my daughter it's all good. It's that in a sense, is it not? You as, as a pedagogical example was to say, you don't have to live to the low expectations that your teachers will come to you with. You have the agency to do better. Absolutely. I think for all of my students um, of all races, I was oftentimes the only or the first black male teacher they had, right? So I think for them, it was also like, oh my gosh, He's a teacher. Like, Mr. Tubbs is young. We listen to the same music. We have the same references. And he's teaching. So maybe school is not so bad. Maybe education is cool. Maybe there is a space for me here because there's someone who looks like me or looks like people I look up to or looks like the music I listen to who's helping deliver instruction. So absolutely. I was a juicy teacher. That was my, my every day I walked into that classroom thinking of like, okay, all the teachers I told them they're in the mountain nothing. Let's prove them wrong with bringing more students into the process of education and building a real army of folks who are trained as critical thinkers and thinking about, okay, how do we make this better and how do we make this society work for everybody? When you were in high school, you wrote an essay for Alice Walker's essay contest. Um, the essay contest was to write an essay, How I Changed My Own life. And that essay and your participation in that process, in fact, changed your whole life. So tell us a little bit about that. It's a, it's a, it's a great story. Yeah, I was um, struggling in drama class because I just missed the lot because I had to go to work. And the bus came at three, but class was into 3.30, so I would leave 30 minutes early every day. Um, and Mr. Matroni, who's since passed, rest in peace, said, you know what, you guys, for extra credit, enter this essay contest by Alice Walker. And I looked at the prompt, and I didn't expect to win. I just thought, like, hey, I need this extra credit. It was a great practice for writing my college essays. And the prompt was, the color purple themes are about how you change your own life. How did you change your own life? And I wrote for the first time about, like, my mom and dad. And, and it was really honest about who they were and, and what they've done and how I also learned from both of them, how both of them were, were, were part of, Part of me, the good and the bad, um, and sort of wrote that essay and ended up winning, which was just, <laughs> which was crazy. And I remember sort of, there was a lot of hoopla. The San Francisco Chronicle came and took pictures of me at Alice Walker's house. The local newspaper ran a front page story on me. Local news stations came. People reached out to me about doing documentaries. People were like, literally, people would send money to my house as scholarships just to me. Like, here's $500. I read your story. This is my first time thinking like, oh, wow, maybe people do care and maybe there's something to this story. Um, and that was the first time I felt that um, my story wasn't something to be ashamed about or my story wasn't something to be embarrassed about. There was something that, that should be shared and shared in a way that's not crying or a sob story, 
the real survivor's tale. Like, look at what I've been through. Look what I've accomplished. And look at what we could do together if we gave more people the chance. You say of yourself that you were to be like that rose. And being like that rose relates back to a poem by Tupac Shakur, The Rose That Grew From Concrete. And I'm able to read it to you, but if you have it handy and can read it, that would be great because that really became, again, a guiding principle to be like that rose. Literally my favorite poem. And it goes, um, did you hear about the rose that grew from the crack in the concrete? Proving nature's laws wrong and learn to walk without having feet. Funny it seems, but by keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air. Long live the rose that grew from the crack in the concrete when no one else ever cared. So you took that sort of almost as a challenge again. Your dad is challenging you. Your mom is challenging. Everyone's challenging you to rise above the soft racism of low expectations. And you did that. And the first sort of step in that journey of proving wrong those who had low expectations was you were accepted to college. So tell us about where you were accepted and how that played out. And then we'll talk a little bit about your time there because there's so much in, you're 30 years old, but you've got a biography of a person who's like 60 because you've done so many things. So let's talk a little (laughs) bit about college and then some of the things you've done there. And then we'll move on to your life as a politician. Yeah, no, I was a first generation college student. Like my dad has a GED. My mom has a high school diploma. My grandparents have high school diplomas, maybe certifications, great grandparents, like, like first one extended family. I'm talking about cousins, aunties, uncles, et cetera, on both sides um, to go to college and was able to go to Stanford University and able to go for free. And was the first one in my school to get into Stanford. It was just such a, I remember when that admissions letter came, I just felt something was different. It felt like an inflection point. It felt like all the work and all the essays in the principal's office and all the late night studying work was worth something. And I remember just crying and calling my mom, my auntie, grandmother, and, and they being so excited and people not believing me, like my former manager at, at Barnes & Noble where I worked, got to print it out to her to show her, no, I, actually I did, I, I, I did get in. And it was just amazing. And at Stanford, I learned that sort of all the things that I was penalized for in Stockton were real assets, being very outspoken, asking questions, wanting to challenge, wanting to push, um, being able to relate to all types of people were real strengths and assets, and also understanding a little bit about how local government works. And Stanford was amazing because it was the first time in my life I was in an environment where all the basics were taken care of. I never had to worry about tuition yet. I never had to worry about whether the lights were going to be on. I never had to worry about what I was going to eat. Like very simple things. All I had to worry about was writing papers and, and, and reading books. And I was like, this is so easy. And it also showed me like my classmates had no sense of limitations. No one had ever ta- tapered down what they could be or their expectations were always so grand. Their view of themselves and the world were so big. And it taught me that, wow, you can operate in a place of yes. Like it's, it's scary to dream, but you can dream and you work hard and do what you can to, to achieve it. And I mean, I, and I now realized they weren't smarter than me either. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just as smart. And you had all this preparation and you had all these resources. Oh no, it's gangbusters. And I just like never have looked back since. <laughs> and I realized that like talent and intellect were truly universal, but oftentimes resources and opportunities are not. The one thing that struck me about your transition from Stockton to Palo Alto, when you read about the number of African-American students who get admitted to college but don't graduate from college, the thing that really impressed me, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about it, is Ujamaa and how that played a role in easing this transition and having you, the context in which to develop the confidence that Actually, what you just said, I can do this. Yeah, I was so blessed to be placed in Ujima House, which is Stanford has. No, no, no. Stanford has these ethnic theme dorms, which are sort of 
centered on particular experiences in this country. So there's a, like a Native American one, there's a first generation one, I think they just built, et cetera. And Ujima was special because it's a, it's a place of legacy. Like Valerie Jarrett lived there her freshman year. Charles Ogletree lived there his freshman year. People like Mae Jameson, Dr. Mae Jameson lived there her. So you come into this place and you're immediately told about all the great alum who lived and walked these halls. And it's like, oh my gosh. And then it's so diverse because it's centered on the African-American experience, but it's only 50% Black and 50% everything else. And even in the 50% Black, that includes global folks so jamaicans trinidadians africans etc so it was like the most diverse place actually i've ever lived in even coming from stockton and being there so my my ra's um one grimai who was now a county council in king's county in seattle um was my ra and he was first generation he was cool he was black Union president he was an ra you had all these examples of sort of being on campus but not being marginalized being on campus but being part of not just Ujima but wider campus and then we had a mentor Jan Barker Alexander who was like my mom at Stanford who really was like the center of the community and really made a point for us to understand that Stanford we weren't lucky we were lucky to be at Stanford but Stanford was also lucky to have us and that with all the privilege we had we had to do something in service of, of humanity with it and she just, and then she also gives this speech to every class when they first get in here, and everyone who who has gone to Stanford can recite it. And the theme is like black is excellent. That that you are told so many ways of being black, but none of that's true. The only way to be black is to be excellent in whatever it is you do. If you like Miley Cyrus, that's cool. If you like J Cole, that's cool too. But no matter who you are or what you identify as, etc., the only requirement for being black is to be excellent. And that was just like the first speech you hear after hearing about all the people who lived in your dorm. So you're just fired up. <laughs> like, yes, let's go. It's great. Now, while at Stanford, there are a couple of things that you did which are pretty impressive, which led, I think, in part to your winning the Lloyd Nicholsfield Award, which is for your efforts to provide opportunities for the underserved to inspire others to do as well both on campus and in your hometown of Stockton. So tell us a little bit about your Phoenix Scholars and Summer Success and Leadership Academy work that you created while at Stanford. Yeah, well, I was so lucky during my college application process to meet a woman named Carol Lawrence, who was a private admissions consultant, made $10,000, $20,000 working with kids on their essays and their apps, who worked for me for free. And she didn't write things for me, but she edited it. She told me what words to use. She told me to change my email from love to play basketball at AOL.com to Michael Tubbs at Yahoo.com. Like different things like that. And she was just such a sounding board and such a, a person that helped me sort of organize myself and helped me build a balanced college list. And I realized sort of what she did for me could be done at scale with undergraduates who go to these elite schools, provided they were given the training. And provide them the information and the resources and, and, and having them focus on sort of under-resourced, underserved schools. So we started, uh, I started a nonprofit with some friends called the Feeding Scholars, which is still operating. And now we have kids who were Phoenix Scholars who have now graduated from Stanford and Berkeley who were Phoenix Scholars mentors to other kids who are now at Stanford and Berkeley. And it's, so, it's so inspiring. Like I randomly get messages from kids in the program. 10, 12 years later after we started it, <laughs> saying, well, thank you. I'm a Phoenix Scholar mentor. This is what it's been for me. And it's literally one of the largest student groups at Stanford, which is like, and it's like a lot of people's only community service. And it was, I feel kind of smart because before this remote learning thing, but the insight was through the power of Skype and with Gchat and with text messaging, you could help kids with their applications. So we were doing this in 2010. Um, and then the Summer Success and Leadership Academy was a summer intervention I designed with some friends at UOP in Stockton, which was like a week-long residential camp for quote-unquote at-risk students and to provide them the environment where all their needs were met, food, shelter, et cetera, an environment to learn, sort of mentors who looked like them and challenged them and, and, and showed a different model of what it meant to be academic and excellent. Um, and that program, we ran it for seven years, and we had – Students in the program eventually become mentors, and students in the program eventually run the program. 
And I still get emails from, from parents whose kids who were in the program who weren't on the college track have now graduated college. So it was th- those experiences um, were really sort of the best part of college because it was, I got to have fun and do the regular college student thing, party, et cetera. But also I had a chance to really make an impact and really begin to think about sort of what did I want to do with all the privilege I had now earned by being a Stanford student. You write that what you saw was that talent is universal, but resources are not. And that you knew that it was hard for these students to see beyond their neighborhoods and their families. But if they could dig deep, there was a whole wide world waiting for them to explore. Absolutely. And that, I mean, it was my personal experience. And I just want to convey that to the students. Like, look, we have a lot of work to do to change the things that are unfair and unjust. But by giving up, you're not helping to change it. <laughs> so if you're really upset with how unfair things is, if you're really upset with how unjust things are, we need you to be co-laborers to fix it. And giving up, succumbing to nihilism, um, not looking up and, and giving yourself permission to dream bigger is only a self-fulfilling prophecy that perpetuates what it is that makes us angry. So I would tell them, like, look, the setup is real. Structure is real. And while we change structures, you have to use your agency. You, you have to fight and resist and do your best, even when it's hard, even when it's unfair, even when it's difficult, because that's the only way we'll be able to change it. Because if we just, oh, it's unfair, oh, it's unjust, then the, it just perpetuates. And then you just are going to be 40 years old, 50 years old, just bitter and upset and angry um, because how things, how unfair things were for you which is one truth, but there's another truth that even when things are unfair, you still can overcome it. And we have to just be, have a balance of both. College was going along for you uh, swimmingly until it seems one day you get a call about your cousin, Donnell. Can you tell us about that? Because that, I think, had a very, prof- as I read the book, it had a very profound impact on your life and what would become your governing philosophy when you became an elected official? Yes, it was another inflection point. I had finished the summer interning at Google. I started the fall interning in the White House. A kid from South Stockton interning in the White House, going to the West Wing once a week uh, with the Department of Intergovernmental Affairs, which is serendipitous looking back at it, doing work with just mayors and councils and spending all my time looking at what mayors and councils were doing across the nation. And while there, my mom called me to inform me that my cousin, Donnell James II, had been murdered at a house party in Stockton. And that was a real gripping moment um, to really think about sort of what was all this good stuff happening to me for? Like, was it enough for me to be at Stanford and for me to be successful if my family was literally back home dying? And what was I going to do to, to change it? Or what could I do to change it? So it was in the midst of that anger, and that pain, I thought about, hmm, maybe one day I need to go back to Stockton and run. Because unfortunately, my experience was not unique or an aberration. That not just in Stockton, but in this nation and in California, the leading cause of death for Black and Latino young men between 18 and 30 years old is gun violence. It's homicide. It's where the ripple effects that has on communities, on families, on neighborhoods, on blocks. So it was really his murder that gave me to look, because I thought I was going to end up in D.C. I thought I was going to end up sort of coming back to Stockton to visit. But it was that murder that really made me think about, oh, no, maybe part of this is for me to come home and just sort of try to lead some change there. You write that growing up, getting out of Stockton was the name of the game. Success was defined as leaving Stockton and not looking back. But with the murder of Donnell, and the rejection of the Rhodes Scholarship that you applied for, that what you learned was that the path for you led you back home to Stockton. This was where you were going to make your initial mark. And you asked the question of yourself, how did you make it out? What made you different? And how could you implement that as a matter of policy, as you returned to Stockton to seek a political career? Um, pause, because that, 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 that is exactly it. Um, it was just this overwhelming sense of survivor's guilt. 
an overwhelming sense that we're going to write this ship. And this overwhelming sense that we just have to show what's possible. We just have to show people that it can be different. So I think oftentimes in communities like Stockton, again, things become self-fulfilling prophecies. If nothing changes, nothing changes. And change doesn't just happen. It has to be forced. Leadership has to push it. And at that time, none of the leaders were saying anything about homicides. None of the leaders were saying anything about the preventable deaths of, of so many young people um, in, in our community. And I thought, well, hey, I could go back and at least offer myself up and even if I lose, at least start a conversation about how do we change course? How do we write this ship? How do we get Stockton really up to its potential? How do you make Stockton a place that everyone's proud of? And that was sort of the unbridled optimism that drove me back to run for city council during my senior year in college. And that theme of reinventing Stockton was thematic to your successful run for city council. And then you're a successful run for mayor. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the initiatives that you undertook while on the council, and then we'll talk a little bit the same about uh, the mayor, because some of these things really interested me a lot. You indicated that murders in Stockton was the highest cause of young men dying, more than heart attack and cancer and, and like. And rather than have the traditional response of the police and prosecutors coming and lecturing gang members and the like uh, about the path that they were on. You invited the community in as part of a sort of community discussion of um, how you all could do this together. You were inviting them into the sort of decision-making process. So can you talk about this? For me, this was a a very unusual approach to crime. And I was wondering if you would first explain it better than I just tried to explain it and then tell us how it worked out. Um, Yeah, so we looked at the data and we found that in the the city of 300,000 people, nearly 200 people were driving 80% of the crime, of the violent crime. And we knew that these, we knew who these individuals were because they were on probation and parole meaning that they were talking to prosecutors and probation agents and cops all the time. They had been arrested on average eight times. So they weren't mysteries to us. And they weren't people we weren't talking to. We are people who our current our strategies for decades just weren't affected. So we looked and did our research and we found that focused deterrence and programs like ceasefire and advanced peace actually are effective strategies to reduce group gun gang violence. And we would have these meetings every quarter, and I would be there every quarter, looking at folks in the play in the face who were either suspected future perpetrators of homicides or victims of homicides, and oftentimes both in the same person. And we would have a conversation about, look, I know it's not fair, but gun violence that's our priority. So we know what we have the police chief here, we know what to do with, with cops and guns, but we also have this other way of opportunity of case management. It's gonna be hard. But if you want to make a change, we'll walk through it with you. And we reduced homicides by 40% in, 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 in the decade, 2016, 2020, with some of the lowest years of gun violence in, in the city this century, in the 2000s. Um, we, we saw significant reductions in gun violence, 30%. And we showed the community that, let, yes, like jails and cops are still here, but let's think about other ways in which we get the outcome we want to see, which is less violence, less shootings, less guns, more people alive. And even now that I'm not even in Stockton still, that work still continues, and they're still writing sort of the fruits of that very difficult labor. It is advanced peace, right? That's the, the existing program? Yeah, so we have two. We have ceasefire and advanced peace. But they're complementary strategies that do essentially the same things. And those are like hand in glove for us to reduce our homicides. The thing that was so unique about it, as I read it, was that you were inviting into a leadership role those people who were the perpetrators of most of the crime, saying to them, we believe that there is a better future for you if you believe there's a better future for you and together we can do better rather than incarcerate and terrorize. And that was to me a very interesting approach to crime. And I'm glad to see that it had the impact that you thought it would have. 
Yeah, and, and part of it was also, to your point, letting them know that they were part of the solution. They're always told that they're the problem. But I was like, no, they're like, look, you are, help, you are part of the solution. So, like, how do we, you guys are leaders. Like, people look up to you. You have influence within your networks. And I need you to make the city safer with me. Like, how do we do it? What do we do together? Like, let's actually show the world that you're an asset and not something to be thrown away and not something whose life doesn't matter. And that was a constant messaging we would get, folks. And again, it wasn't 100% effective, but a 40% reduction in homicides is like 30, 35 more people alive today. All right. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, which I found really interesting, was that as a council member, what you undertook was a community assessment where you essentially asked the community to let you know what in their minds were their most pressing needs. So you think of government as sort of a downward government's going to tell you what is good for you and is going to drive that through policy. You launched this community assessment, which was a upward push where the community had an opportunity to tell you what was on their mind so that you could build policy around what they needed or what they considered their greatest needs rather than you trying to assess for them. And can you talk a little bit about this community assessment process and the impact of it in terms of the health clinic and the financial credit union and the like? Well, first, let me say it was so much work. (laughs) It was so much work, but it was necessary. And I realized that sort of what I was hearing in City Hall was different from what I was hearing in community meetings. And even some of the community groups who had access to me, they weren't necessarily oftentimes the best barometer for what actual community members felt. So I had all this energy and enthusiasm because I was this young councilman and everybody wanted to help. So I organized a community and we had like 100 volunteers go knock on doors and survey our community and say sort of, what are you, what, what are some of the issues you're seeing? And we spent time designing that survey. And then when we designed the survey, we tabulated the data and what rose to the top, which shocked me, was health and health facilities and a lack of access to healthcare. And this was in 2014. So this is like before COVID-19 and before we realized the savage inequities in our public health system. And that was so interesting to me. And I said, okay, well, that wasn't top of my list, but we have to do something. So I spent months looking for a health clinic and we found a vacant one in, in a gym in the community that we opened up. And then folks talked about this particular liquor store, which is like a, ma- a magnet for crime and, and homicides and shooting. It's like a site of real trauma in the community. And we worked with the community, with the police chief, with the city attorney to shut down the liquor store and cross that off. And then people talked about banking and the lack of banking services. So we worked with the uh, financial credit union to, to invest and build a financial credit union in, in South Stockton. And it, and it was this incredible work because, again, nothing had been moving particularly in that community for 60 years. It was just stagnant and just getting worse. So people saw sort of by providing us some input that wasn't just surveying for the sake of surveying, but that we were actually delivering, that we were actually um, make, couldn't do everything, but we're actually doing something tangible. So folks felt like, oh, wow, my opinion matters. You write that perhaps the most important takeaway from your time on the city council is that while it might take more time, while it might be messier, it is vital to make people feel ownership of the change that will affect them. Bring people in and they will implement solutions with commitment. As the adage goes, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I was gonna say, absolutely, it's a lesson I continually learn and relearn because there's a, a, I like to move fast. I like to get it done yesterday. And sometimes for big things, you really have to slow down. And that's still something I have to learn. But I also know that the things that have been most successful were the things that were, went a little bit slower and, and, and brought people in. And it really took the time to build consensus. You had a speed bump along the way which you took ownership of, which I would like to ask you about a little bit, which is your driving under the influence arrest. Because again, this was transformative in many respects in the way that you took 
ownership of your life and how you try to teach ownership of your life's mistake to others? Yeah, the DUI is something I'm so embarrassed about. It's such a stupid, dumb, reckless decision. But also something I'm grateful for the lessons I've learned from it, right? I learned so much about accountability, about forgiveness, about the need for grace, about sort of the need to give people second chances because we're all better than the worst thing that we've done. Um, And it was just such a moment of, seeing the community really rally around me and saying, no, Michael, we don't want you to resign. We want you to step up and get some help if you need help. But let's continue this work we're doing to make the city better. Um, so, and then afterwards, having to go to my kids, like my students and talk to them about me having the DUI, incredibly embarrassing, but very difficult. And also just how humbling it, it, it was to like be just, I mean, plastered everywhere, like, Every news station in California was running stories. I had to do a national interview with Melissa Harris Perry about the DUI, and then one with Alicia Menendez about the DUI. It was just so much, uh, but it was it was very humanizing, and it made me reflect on how I was so lucky to be given a second chance after committing a crime, a DUI, and how we throw away so many other people who have committed, who made mistakes, who have made bad decisions. And sort of how do we create a society where people are held accountable and have to show remorse, but after we hold them accountable and they show remorse, that they're able to contribute and show that there's more to them than the one bad decision. And that was just super, because before I have felt I had did everything right. So like this idea of forgiveness or grace, I was like, that's for other people. So I'm good. So when I actually needed to be forgiven, when I actually needed grace, I recognize that, wow, like we are all one stupid decision away and we want to live in a society that gives, again, people the chance for second chances. So I want to pivot from what may have been a a substantial mistake in your life to what was a substantial um, blessing in your life. And if you would tell us a little bit about a person named Anna, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, Anna Malachi Tubbs. Tell us. Tell us who she is and and what influence she has had on your life. Yeah, Anna Malika Tubbs is my wife. Um, I met her in college planning a protest. Um, Somehow convinced her to move to Stockton with me, despite the fact that she grew up around the world. And she's just a constant sort of voice of reason, someone who understands the importance of being vulnerable and showing your emotions. I'm someone who's fearless in her desire to fight erasure, particularly the erasure of women and particularly the erasure of black women in their contribution. And someone who really helped provide a feminist lens on the work we were doing in Stockton. Um, so now we have two kids now. Our son, who's named Michael Malachi, after both of us and our daughter, Nehemiah. And she's just amazing. She taught you, I think, and we'll talk about your run for mayor and your run for re-election, but she taught you that people are interested in knowing how you feel personally about things. And they want to know that you're human and that your tendency to do rather than feel might be interfering with your political aspirations. Can you talk a little bit about that message that she gave to you? Yeah. During the Black Lives Matter protest in 2020, I was just exhausted and frustrated because I thought we were doing everything right. And people were still, like, upset and angry. I'm like, what the hell? Like, we, we, we did the reforms. We're doing this. We're doing that. Like, no no overbearing police presence on our protests. Like, we're, you know, we're doing what we need to do. And she stopped me. She said, I think people want to see that you hurt, too, that you're impacted by this, that you're not, this is not just another thing for you. And I was like, oh, wow, people really care about that? I'm trying to get this stuff done. <laughs> but she was right. It's great. Now you run for mayor, you run an upstart campaign against an incumbent mayor, and you win with nearly 70% of the vote on a message, as we talked about, of reinventing Stockton, that you wanted to make Stockton a model of urban renewal based on structural change. And you determined that the best and most direct intervention to combat poverty during your term as mayor was through education 
and a guaranteed income. So can we talk about each of those policies that you tried to initiate? Maybe we could start with guaranteed income, how it came to be that you concluded that and, and how you came to implement it. And then we'll move on to education. Yes, I'm obsessed with ending poverty. And I felt that the root cause of all the issues in Stockton I was fighting as council member and then as mayor was poverty. And that we had to find a way to really address that at a policy and not a programmatic level. And my staff did research, came back with the idea of basic income. I had learned about that studying Dr. King in college and said, okay, it'd be really interesting to be part of this conversation one day. And then um, met the Economic Security Project literally the next week. We decided to work together. And we, not, we launched the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, the first mayor-led basic income program in this country, and the first in like 50 years. And since then, now we have like 60 mayors that are part of a group I started called Mayors for Guaranteed Income. We have 25 pilots we're overseeing across this country. We have at the federal level, stimulus checks and child tax credit checks, all checks, checks, checks. But when we started talking about this in 2017, there wasn't even consensus from Democrats that it was okay to give people money. So the fact that the pendulum has swung so much makes me really proud of that work. And it was essentially directly giving money to people to allow them to have a better life. And the pushback, I remember you writing about the pushback. People thought that, well, people would get this money and they wouldn't want to work. And it was just, you know, sort of free welfare or some such thing. But but you tell you tell a very different story about how people used the money that they got. Maybe you could tell us one of those stories, because I think it's important for people to understand how this money is life-changing for so many people. Um, one of the stories that really struck me was this guy, Tomas, who talked about how, because he worked part-time, he could never take time off to interview for a full-time job because he couldn't afford to miss that day's paycheck. And with the guaranteed income, he was able to find a full-time job, which allowed him more flexibility in his schedule, which allowed him to spend more time with his kids, which allowed him to learn sort of what they liked and what they didn't like. So he found out his daughter was loved science. So he had money to take her to the aquarium and money to buy her the things, pay for extra tutoring in science, et cetera. And his story is the exemplar of so many other stories of people who with just a little bit of cash were able to make a world of difference for themselves and their families. And the data that comes back confirms that. For those who receive the guaranteed income, they're two times more likely to go from part-time work to full-time work, two times less likely to be unemployed than those who don't receive a guaranteed income, and were less stressed, happier, healthier, and better able to contribute to their families and to the community. It's a remarkable story. The second prong of your program was this reInvent Stockton Foundation, the promise of a college education. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then we'll sort of bring this to a close. Yeah, so the Stockton, the Raymond Stockton Foundation was a foundation I started when I was um, surveying sort of what would be a way to institutionalize the work and just be, seeing how powerful education was in my life. I was able to raise $20 million from Evan Spiegel and then like $5, $6 million from other people to launch the Stockton Scholars. So now for the next 10 years, every single kid who graduates from a Stockton high school is guaranteed a four-year, two-year or trade school scholarship. An idea of being like, let's make a guarantee that if you work hard, if you do all you can to, to, to make it through high school, despite the challenges you face, there is a guarantee for you. You don't have to do anything but put in an application. You automatically qualify. And I'm so proud of that because I think those are the young people that are going to come back to Stockton and make the change. So as we draw to a close, I was wondering if you would read to us what Alice Walker wrote to you when you won the essay contest. It was an important message for you at the time in your young life. So let us hear it, if you would, Michael. Tubbs's essay exemplifies what the color purple is about. The belief that each of us has an indomitable spirit within us that we can trust to carry us through perils even more terrifying than the systems of domination, whether by race, gender, class, or other, set in place to keep us down that we own our own souls and are therefore offered the freedom to choose dignity and self-respect, which happily chosen gives us the courage to live our own lives. And what is more, 
to cherish and enjoy them. It's a great quote. And actually, it's an important message for all of us. So thank you, Michael, for, for sharing that with us. Last question. You embrace the biblical quote, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. So, Michael Tubbs, we're expecting you to carry it to completion with more great things. And if you would tell us what's next on the horizon for you. Yeah, what's next for me is really focused on how do we create a country that has opportunity for all people? How do we live in a country that sees everyone's human dignity? So concretely, I'm launching an initiative called End Poverty in California, endpovertynca.org. And we'll continue to do other narrative projects and storytelling projects that really illustrate who we are at our best. We will look forward to watching that evolve. So the book is called The Deeper the Roots, A Memoir of Hope and Home. It was an important read. Michael, I'm thankful that you wrote it, and I'm more thankful that you joined us today on that set. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the convo. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.